Part 5. Fellowship What is fellowship? Fellowship is the connection we share with our fellow Christians and with God. Christians use fellowship to draw strength from and to support each other in their walk with God. Why is fellowship important? Fellowship is, in so many ways, the glue that holds the Church of God together. The Church is not a building or an organization, but what the New Testament calls the ecclesia, Strong's number G1577, the assembly of believers. The Church is made up of people, and those people are all connected through their common connection with the God they serve. That common connection is the space where fellowship exists. Through the act of fellowshipping, we strengthen ourselves and the church by putting our God-given gifts to use. As we come to a deeper understanding of what gifts God has given us and the best ways to use them, we increase the effectiveness of that fellowship. In the New Testament, the church is described as a spiritual body that is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Ephesians 4.16 ESV Fellowship is the process that allows each part to do the work God intended it to do. When Christians, functioning as the individual joints and parts of that spiritual body, use fellowship properly, the end result is that Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15-16 ESV Behold how good and pleasant it is, wrote David, for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1 Fellowship is more than just a tool. It's a precious gift given to us by our Creator. Chapter 16. How Fellowship Works As straightforward as fellowship might sound, it's a concept with many layers. Before we jump into the best ways to fellowship, it's important to understand how fellowship works. That means stepping back and analyzing what the New Testament authors, and more importantly, God, had in mind when they used the word. Then we can look at what exactly fellowship requires of us. What we have in common The primary New Testament word for fellowship, koinonia, Strong's number G2842, means that which is shared in common. In Koine Greek, koinonia could be used to refer to many different things, everything from business partnerships to communal meals to a sexual relationship. In the New Testament, koinonia has a much narrower range of meaning. The key here is that koinonia points us toward the common ground shared between two or more people. As Christians, our fellowship is centered around what we have in common. And what we have in common is God. It's easy to think of fellowship as the interactions Christians have with each other, but it's more than that. Our shared belief in God and desire to obey Him and follow Him is what makes fellowship possible in the first place. Without that common ground, True Christian fellowship is impossible. We can talk with people who don't believe in God. We might even get along with others who aren't interested in obeying Him. But we can never have true godly fellowship with them. It's impossible. We don't share the same common ground when it comes to our beliefs about serving and following God. And that is the essence of Christian fellowship. God wrote that the apostles were sharing with the church everything they had seen and heard concerning the word of life. 1 John 1 verse 1, and that the purpose of this sharing was that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3. This is fellowship in its simplest terms. 
Your faith in God leads you to pursue a closeness with Him, a fellowship with Him. But you're not the only one with that faith, are you? By drawing close to God, you'll draw close to others who are also drawing close to God. Our fellowship with God naturally leads us into fellowship with each other. John continued, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Verses 6-7 through seven. Remove God from the picture, and you remove the fellowship. Fellowship unites us as Christians with a common goal, a common focus, and a common purpose. The Fellowship of The New Testament authors sometimes wrote about fellowship on its own, but they also connected it to some important related concepts. Paul wrote about the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.9, the communion, koinonia, of the blood of Christ, and the communion, koinonia, of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.16, your fellowship in the gospel, Philippians 1.5, fellowship of the Spirit, Philippians 2.1, the fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians 3.10, the sharing, koinonia, of your faith. Philemon 1 verse 6. And if we expand our search to things we have in common or share, we find a trove of other valuable verses. Jude wrote about our common salvation, Jude 1 verse 3. The author of Hebrews calls us holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Hebrews 3 verse 1. Peter wrote about being a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, 1 Peter 5 1, and how through exceedingly great and precious promises you may be partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 Paul told the Philippians that they were all partakers with me of grace. Philippians 1.7 He told the Corinthians about everything he did for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. 1 Corinthians 9.23 Through these verses, we're given a clearer picture of what our fellowship ought to be centered around. We are connected by the Son of God, His body, his blood, and his sufferings give us access to both God's Spirit and salvation itself. We share in the gospel. We share in the gospel's message of hope and salvation, its exceedingly great and precious promises, that one day we will share in the divine nature. We share a common faith in these promises, a faith that will one day lead us to a common salvation as eternal, immortal sons and daughters of God himself. These things are the connective tissue that enable us to fellowship with both God and with our fellow Christians. Without them, our fellowship, and even our very lives, would become hollow, empty, and pointless. Fellowship begins with God. The Garden of Eden was a unique chapter in human history. For a time, the first man and first woman had direct access to and a close personal relationship with their creator. He walked in the garden with them. He spoke with them and taught them. It wasn't just paradise because of the lush physical environment. It was paradise because Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. They lived in his presence. In the beginning, God created man, and then he fellowshiped with him. When Adam made the choice to sin, he and his wife were evicted from paradise. But they weren't just evicted from a beautiful garden and a life of comfort. They were evicted from the presence of God. 
They were evicted from divine fellowship. They lost their connection with God. The ultimate goal for fellowship. But God didn't write off humanity after Adam's failure in the garden. In fact, when we step back and look at what God tells us he's doing, we discover that the plan of God is about re-establishing fellowship with the human race. It's right there at the end of the book. After Satan is defeated once and for all, after the dead, small and great, have their eyes open to the things which were written in the books, Revelation 20 verse 12, after the first heaven and the first earth are replaced with something new, after all that, we get a glimpse of the motivating reason for God's creation of humanity. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, verses 3-4 through four. He will be with them, and they shall be his people. That's what this whole thing has been about, from the dawn of creation up until the very moment we're living in. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. The foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve made their decision in the Garden of Eden, the plan was in place to initiate the sacrifice that would bring us back into fellowship with God. So if you're thinking fellowship isn't a particularly important tool in the Christian toolbox, think again. Fellowship after the Garden From Genesis to Revelation, we can trace the threads of God's plan. It began with fellowship. It will end with fellowship. And fellowship plays an important role along the way. After Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden and God's presence behind, we still see evidence of God forming relationships with people. Enoch is noted as having walked with God for 300 years, Genesis 5.22. Noah, Enoch's great-grandson, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who also walked with God, Genesis 6 verse 9, ESV. Abraham walked before God and was blameless, Genesis 17.1. He was even called a friend of God, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7. From the Garden of Eden up until the establishment of the nation of Israel, God continued fellowshipping on an individual level with those who obeyed him and called upon his name. Fellowshipping with the nation of Israel But God was working toward something greater. God praised Abraham as someone who obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Genesis 26 verse 5 He promised Abraham, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 22, 17-18 Part of that promise was fulfilled with the establishment of the nation of Israel. These twelve tribes, descended from Abraham, entered into a special relationship with God. Through a man named Moses, God led Israel into the wilderness, to a mountain called Sinai, and descended on it in a spectacular display. We're told about thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain in Exodus 19, verse 16. Trumpets blasted and left the people shaking in fear. Before long, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, 
because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Verse 18. This was the presence of the Creator of the universe, manifested in our physical world for all Israel to see. It was magnificent, incredible, awesome, and terrifying. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Exodus 24 verses 16 through 18 God had told Israel, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 As part of that covenant relationship, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25 verse 8 When construction was finished on that sanctuary, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40 verse 34 This God, who set a mountain on fire with his very presence, was going to dwell among the Israelites. Other nations had temples filled with statues of their false god, but Israel, Israel would have a sanctuary, a tabernacle, filled with the divine presence of the universe's creator. Their God would dwell with them and go with them on their journey through the wilderness. Part of what made Israel a special treasure above all people was the simple fact that they, out of all the nations of the earth, had fellowshiped with God. Moses asked, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you today? Only take heed to yourself, and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Deuteronomy 4 verses 7-9 through But Ultimately, Israel did forget. They didn't hold on to God's statutes and righteous judgments. They took God's fellowship for granted. And just like Adam and Eve, they lost that connection through their sins. Historically, the ancient Israelites tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Psalm 78 verse 56. In response, he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among them, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand, verses 60 through 61. This cycle repeated itself throughout Israel's history until, eventually, God allowed his people to be conquered and enslaved by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. His fellowship with Israel on a national level was temporarily over, but he still hadn't given up on his relationship with humanity. He still had something greater in mind. Access to the mercy seat was limited. A key component of the tabernacle and later the temple that Solomon built to replace it, was the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark contained the testimony, the tablets containing the Ten Commandments. But God also commanded Moses to include another important feature on the Ark. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall place the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. 
Exodus 25, verses 21 through 22. Expositor's Bible Commentary notes, One of the primary intentions of worship is to meet with the living God. It is from his throne above the cherubim that he speaks and meets with his people. The mercy seat was where God would meet with man. But that access was limited. The ark was kept in a part of the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place, and the only one allowed in there was the high priest, once a year during the Day of Atonement. God warned Moses that coming at any other time would prove fatal, that the high priest was not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 verse 2. Even though God dwelt with Israel for a time, there was still a barrier between God and the people. The mercy seat was behind a veil that only one man could enter, and even then only once a year, to make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 17. God's next step was to remove that barrier forever. Fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. The author of Hebrews explained that the physical tabernacle was only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. Hebrews 8.5 Jesus Christ taught that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4.24 The physical tabernacle, including the most holy place, the ark, and God's mercy seat, were physical objects that offered a glimpse into the heavenly things. The spiritual, truth-filled worship God is looking for requires something beyond the physical, something we don't inherently have within us. Jesus promised his disciples that his death would enable them to receive the spirit they needed to worship God. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. John 16 verse 7 He further promised that this Helper would abide with you forever, the spirit of truth which the world cannot receive, because it neither sees it nor knows it, but you know it, for it dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, verses 16 through 17. This spirit of truth is the key to worshiping God in spirit and truth, and the sacrifice of Christ was the key to receiving that spirit. When Jesus died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, the veil of the temple, the thick, tall, heavy curtain separating the most holy place, was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark 15, verse 38. As our high priest, see Hebrews 3, verse 1, Jesus made the perfect atonement for sin, an atonement no human high priest has ever been able to offer, see Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 15. He ripped open the barrier between us and the mercy seat, making it possible for us to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. Shortly after his death and resurrection on the Feast of Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled his promise to send the Helper to his disciples. On that day, a string of miracles made it clear that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 verse 4 But it wasn't just the disciples. Peter urged the crowds, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Verses 38 through 39. Our personal fellowship with God. Which brings us to right now, this moment. 
When we repent of our sins and are baptized into God's church, God places His Holy Spirit within us, fundamentally changing who and what we are. We are no longer just human beings, but human beings with the Spirit of God, a treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. By accepting Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we receive forgiveness of our sins and a special connection with God. Jesus promised, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14 verse 23 Through God's Spirit and our continued efforts to obey the commandments of our Savior, we have fellowship with God. We have common ground with the Creator of the universe. Through His Spirit, He dwells in us. That's incredible. For the entirety of human history, God the Father and Jesus Christ have been working toward enabling this kind of fellowship with their creation, and we get to experience it. What's more, our fellowship with God is ultimately fed by the four other Christian tools. We can each individually strengthen our connection with God through regular prayer, study, meditation, and fasting. Of course, our individual connection with God isn't the whole picture, is it? It's important, to be sure. It's the core of fellowship. It's what ties all Christian believers together. But ultimately, Christian fellowship isn't just about you and God. It's about you and God and the thousands of believers who share your faith. Together, we form the whole body of Christ, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Ephesians 4.16 As we come to understand what it means to be part of this whole body of Christ, we'll also come to understand the true beauty of fellowship. Fellowship with God connects us with others. We can use the first four tools for Christian growth in total isolation. We can pray on our own. We can study on our own. We can meditate on our own. We can fast on our own. Fellowship is different. Even though we can connect with God on our own, our fellowship with God is intended to connect us with others who are pursuing a relationship with Him. But the fellowship we share with each other, the common ground that we share through our mutual connection with God, isn't just a casual thing. The Bible shows us that these mutual connections are supposed to form a core part of our identity as Christians. In fact, the Bible has a name for these connections. The church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, Strong's number G1577, meaning an assembly or gathering. Far more than being contained within a single building or legal entity, the church of God is the assembly of faithful Christians from around the world. Jesus promised Peter, On this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades, or death, shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was establishing the foundation for an assembly of faithful believers, promising that even death itself would be powerless to sever that special web of connections. Sometimes, New Testament authors used ecclesia to talk about specific church congregations, but always with the understanding that these smaller, literal assemblies were part of a bigger, metaphorical assembly. Although it would be impossible for every Christian in the world to come together at the same time in the same place, we are still part of a single ecclesia, the Church of God. How important is this assembly? The author of Hebrews urged his audience, 
let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 24-25 And God doesn't leave us in the dark about what form that assembling should take. When he instructed Israel about his annual feasts, he called them holy convocations, Leviticus 23, verse 2, or sacred assemblies, NIV. He also included a recurring weekly assembly in that list. The seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, verse 3. Every week, the seventh day Sabbath is a day for Christians to assemble together as God's ecclesia, fellowshipping with each other and growing together as God commanded. On top of that, God calls us to assemble together for his seven holy convocations throughout the year, giving us further opportunity for growth. The Apostle Paul often wrote about the function of the church, and he had two favorite analogies for explaining that function, the temple and the body. By taking a closer look at those analogies, we can come away with a deeper understanding of the role fellowship ought to play within God's church. The Church as the Temple of God Paul told the Corinthians, You are the temple of the living God, reminding them of God's promise to dwell in them and walk among them. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 When Paul wrote those words, the physical temple of God had already been destroyed once by the Babylonians in 586 BC, with a second destruction still in its future by the Romans in AD 70. But after the sacrifice of Christ, the physical temple wasn't the focus anymore. The temple veil was torn. Through the Holy Spirit, God the Father and Jesus Christ would be dwelling directly within baptized Christians. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Instead of a physical building, the Church of God would ultimately fulfill the role of God's temple. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2 verses 20 through 22. Peter also explored the idea of the church as a building that was being fitted together. He wrote, Coming to him, Jesus Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4-5 If the church is a temple, then the people of the church are the stones God is using to build it. Jesus serves as the chief cornerstone, verse 7, setting the template for everything that follows, while God places each of us where he sees fit in whatever location he knows we will be able to do the most good. As a temple and a holy priesthood, many of the principles that apply to the temple apply to us. We are holy, set apart by God for a special purpose. We can lose that holiness, defile it, by failing to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. Leviticus 10 verse 10 ESV the common and unclean things of the world have no place in God's spiritual temple. As the living stones of that temple, we are in constant contact with each other. When we allow the world's rottenness into our own lives, we allow it into God's temple and into the shared space we have in common with our fellow believers. Paul warned, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy 
which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 3.17 We have a duty to God and to each other to preserve the sacred holiness of this spiritual temple. Abstaining from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans or non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2 verses 11 through 12 NIV When we do our part to keep God's temple holy, we strengthen our connection to our fellow Christians and to our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The Church as the Body of Christ More than a building, Paul saw the church as a body. And not just any body, but the body of Jesus Christ. He described individual Christians as various components of that body, with Jesus as the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Colossians 2 verse 19 Just as with the temple analogy, Christians don't play a passive, uninvolved role in the body of Christ. In fact, when we look at the church as a body, it only serves to highlight the essential nature of Christian fellowship, as well as the important and varied roles that fellowship can play. Paul spent the most time talking about the body of Christ in his first letter to the Corinthians. He told them, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13. There are two sides to this coin. The body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Verse 12. As Christians, we experience a unity in our mutual connection to Jesus, the head of the body. But that unity is not uniformity. We are not all the same. We each bring something unique to the body, and that uniqueness is vital. Paul continued, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verses 15-20 through 20, ESV There's an obvious absurdity in Paul's questions. A whole body filled with unique parts, with each part trying to perform the same identical function? That's obviously not the way God designed the human body to work. Even if our ears were capable of wanting to see, they would never be able to. But our ears aren't inadequate because they're incapable of sight, and our eyes aren't inadequate because they're incapable of hearing. Our ears are for hearing. Our eyes are for seeing. We don't expect them to serve a different function, and we don't look at them as inferior for doing what they were designed to do. So Paul points our attention to the spiritual implications of that analogy. God equipped you to serve a specific function in the Church of God. There's not a hierarchy of most important function and least important function. You aren't going to be judged by your inability to do what someone else can do. Your job is to do your job. Whatever that job happens to be, your job is to contribute to the body by using the gifts God gave you, wherever he placed you in that body. That's the focus of this analogy. 
the contributions we each make to the body of Christ and, therefore, to each other. As much as God equipped you to do things others can't, He also equipped others to do things you can't. And, just like members of a body, we depend on each other. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 21 through 22 and 24 through 26. Fellowship requires connection. And in our connection to God and to each other, we are impacted by each other. When our fellow Christians, our fellow body parts, are hurting, we ought to feel that hurt. When they're experiencing joy, we ought to share in that joy. The end result of that connection is something truly beautiful. Growth. Not separate and apart from each other, not individually, but as a single, connected, spiritual organism being guided and led by God. In another letter, Paul wrote, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. This is the ultimate goal of Christian fellowship. We are, collectively, the joints and bones and ligaments and muscles and organs that make up a spiritual body. God has placed us exactly where we need to be, equipped to do exactly what we need to do. And when every part does its share, the body grows. But we're not talking about just any kind of growth. We're growing until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13, ESV. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're growing toward. That's what fellowship with God and with each other is helping us attain. For the rest of part five, we'll explore what effective fellowship looks like and what exactly your role is in that process.